In parts 1 and 2 of Death Rides the Rails, I examined the five canonical crimes ascribed to the Midwest Axe Murderer, and in part 3, a few non-canonical crimes that may be his handiwork. Despite the San Antonio murder of the Cassaways usually being attributed to a different serial killer altogether, I feel they're more similar to the crimes of the Midwest killer than the one they're usually ascribed to, but more on that later. In this fourth and final part, some of the suspects in the case will be examined and the possible clues described. The Midwest killer's relationship to the second serial killer described above will also be looked at. Arthur Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. As alluded to in the intro, the final part of this series is going to be a little bit less of a researched episode and more of a general opinion and summing up episode. I was recently on Project Archivist, and when I was on there, I discussed, among other things, why it is that Velisca remains the best known of these crimes and why the others remain obscure, although a connection between all the individual cases was always seen. The fact that the body count there is the largest likely has something to do with it. The investigation into Velisca was probably also the most thorough of any of the individual massacres, and in addition, most all of the leads in the Midwest Axe murders came from the investigation into that crime. What follows are some of the suppositions I've made about whoever it may have been who committed this series of crimes. So what do we know of this mystery man? Well, absolutely nothing to be fair although we can deduce quite a bit. So let's go over what we can deduce from commonalities between the crimes. I suppose we should first say that while most people nowadays treat the Midwest string as having been committed by the same offender, I suppose technically we don't actually know it was a serial killer. Personally, I think it should be fairly apparent, however, so the different murders have several points of commonality which... I think makes it statistically much more probable that we're dealing with the same offender. Certainly, at the time that these killings were actually going on, at least the first five crimes, which by which I mean Colorado Springs, Monmouth, Ellsworth, Paola, and Velisca, were actively bring, being pursued as connected, to the extent that, when a suspect surfaced in one of the cases, he was usually accused of all the others as well. This is what befell Lovely, Lovey Mitchell, accused in the Monmouth killing of the Dawsons, and Charles Marzik, accused of the murders of the Showman family in Ellsworth. So first, we should agree that it was not any of the suspects discussed so far in the previous episodes. All those suspects had various issues with their arrests or attempted convictions, 
Even William Mansfield, who's often thought of as a serious suspect, is likely nothing of the sort. There was no definitive link between him and any of the others, and it, was, it couldn't even be proven that he committed the murders at Blue Island, for which he was initially arrested. Second, whoever this guy was, he wasn't large at all. Footprints were found at a few of the crime scenes, and in nearly every instance, they were described as those of either a very small man or possibly even a woman. In addition, footprints found at the Hill murder scene in Ardenwald were judged to be identical to the ones found near the Coble home in Rainier, which would suggest that those two, at the very least, were the same killer. Third, and this is pure speculation, but he may have been Eastern European. Some researchers have interpreted both a covering of windows and of mirrors in the case of Aliska, though I should make it clear that the covering of mirrors occurs in none of the other cases. But some researchers think that this is consistent with some Eastern European funerary traditions. Personally, I think the covering of windows was meant only to avoid detection. But I admit I do struggle to find any other reason mirrors would be covered except for the old superstition, that the parting souls would be trapped in mirrors. Again, I should state this last feature was found only at Velisca, although the covering of windows was done at all of them. Fourth, it's probable that there was some connection with railroads. Either the killer was a vagrant, traveling from place to place via rail, or possibly he was a rail worker. Almost all of the homes were within a block or two of railroad tracks, sometimes considerably closer. The showman's home in Ellsworth, for instance, was practically right beside the railroad. Fifth, he seems to have wanted to de delay discovery of his crimes. Of course, technically every murderer wants to do that. But to me, his covering of windows and locking or otherwise blocking doors seems to imply this, as does the fact that he covered his telephone at the showman house. This was possibly an attempt to muffle sounds of the phone. Though this, again, did not take place at other crime scenes, even ones that had a telephone in the house. Sixth, the killer was very likely a pervert. There's some degree of implication in all of the murders that some molestation or even necrophilic activities with the corpses took place. Of course, this was usually hidden behind vague phrasing, and one could assume the rumors that several victims had been raped before death are indicative of this. Most victims were killed where they lay, but usually at least one body would be posed. This was usually that of the oldest female child in the home. Though recall that there was some speculation that the corpse of Mrs. Hill in Ardenwald was assaulted as well. Seventh, there's the question of fire. Several sources have claimed that the killer often tried to burn down the home. But when looking through newspaper accounts, it seems that only at Colorado Springs was there any evidence of any burning. And in that case, if you recall, a newspaper photographer claimed that he had inadvertently singed the curtains. Of the many murders recounted in The Man from the Train, there are quite a few where the house was burned, but those are also ones that, for various reasons, I believe are probably not committed by this killer. Eighth, I'm uncertain as to the amount of premeditation that went into these crimes. I have a gut feeling, it's hard to describe exactly why, that on some level these were very impulsive crimes. Recall that at Ellsworth, he apparently tried to break into another house, before the showman's, 
but I believe he was scared off from that house once he realized that somebody was still awake in the house. But then there are evidences in a few of the scenes that he might have cased the scene of the crime first. A vacant house was found at Colorado Springs that had a peephole that was overlooking the house of the Burnhams. A similar condition was found in the barn at, in the barn at Villisca, as well as indications that someone had lain in the hay. I'm unsure about that. And finally, I think one thing should be agreed upon. Regardless of whether the Cassaways, Hills, or Cobles were killed by this murderer, I think we should agree that Colorado Springs was very likely not truly his first murder. The slaughter of two entire households seems to be an event that most killers would need to work up to over a possibly a lengthy period of time, not something one would do on their first foray into the world of murder. So with these deductions out of the way, let's go through some of the more prominent suspects that haven't been mentioned in previous episodes. These suspects are arranged from least likely to a final one who seems most likely of all, but has one glaringly obvious flaw. First, and most surprisingly, even a connection to the 1892 murder of the Bordens in Fall River, Massachusetts, in which daughter Lizzie Borden was the most prominent suspect, was pursued. You see, John Vinicle Morse, who was Lizzie's uncle and a visitor at the home the night before Mr. and Mrs. Borden were killed, had moved to Iowa at some point after the murders. He was a brother of Mr. Borden's first wife, or Lizzie's, Lizzie's actual mother, and he was a native of Massachusetts, but he had moved to the Midwest at some point, moving around various places in Minnesota and Illinois before settling in Iowa. At the time of the murders, he again was staying in Massachusetts, and then, as said, he returned to the Midwest at some point afterward. John Morse had been a suspect in the Borden case for a short time, and almost on a whim, investigators tried to track him down after the Velisca murders took place. However, when they arrived in Hastings, the town that he lived in, they were to find that he had died three months before. In 1917, Reverend J.J. Burris of Oklahoma testified before the grand jury that eventually exonerated Frank Jones from any involvement in the Villisca murders that in 1913 he had been assigned to a church in Raidersburg, Montana. While he was there, he attended to the bedside of a man who was dying of what was presumably advanced alcoholism. The man confessed to Reverend Burris that he had murdered eight people in Villisca, Iowa, but begged that his confession be kept from the public, even from his own family, unless it could be used to help an innocent man. Unfortunately, perhaps conveniently, Burris couldn't recall what the name of the man actually was. He had originally written of, of the confession in a letter to Frank Jones, which was forwarded to the grand jury. Discussion with authorities in Montana revealed that, even though the story seemed rather... Um, conveniently unconfirmable. Indeed, Burris had been a minister at the Christ Church in Raidersburg in 1913, which did lend it at least a bit of credibility. Another suspect came to light in the months following Villisca, in December 1912. Mrs. Mary J. Wilson, 82, and her daughter, Georgia Moore, who was 61, were slain in their home on Moore's Boulevard in Columbia, Missouri. Georgia's son, Henry Lee Moore, 
a railroad employee, was also a resident at the home, and he arrived there around 8.15 a.m. on the morning of December 18th. He discovered his mother and grandmother both dead, bludgeoned with an axe. The axe was found discarded in a gorge near the house. It eventually transpired that Henry Lee Moore had actually arrived in Columbia on the afternoon of December 17th. I'm uncertain of the exact details, and they're honestly kind of irrelevant, but it was determined that Henry Lee Moore had murdered his mother and grandmother to obtain some money that his grandmother had made from selling a piece of property. M.W. McClory, a figure in the Velisca investigation, seized on the idea that Moore's crime was similar enough to the other Midwest Axe murders and suggested that he was responsible for the entire series. Except, well, it really wasn't. The murder had been done with an axe, and at least Henry's mother had been in bed when killed. But this was about the extent of any real similarity. Moore claimed that the blinds in the house were drawn, but none of the other primary accounts mentioned this, so who knows. At any rate, the entire string beginning with Colorado Springs was laid at Moore's feet. In prison, he supposedly confessed that he had, indeed, committed the other murders as well, but jailhouse confessions are notoriously unreliable. Henry Lee Moore, in my mind, was without doubt guilty of the Columbia slangs, but his guilt beyond that is pretty dubious. Another famous suspect, and one on whom many to this day lay the blame for Velisca, at least, was mentioned only briefly in part two. He seems to fit many of the deduced traits I mentioned earlier. Lynn George J. Kelly was an Englishman by birth. A small, unremarkable man, he stood only five feet two inches tall. He had his fair share of sexual quirks, to put it mildly. His wife was quoted as saying that they had, nor- had never had normal sexual relations. Kelly was a visiting preacher at the Presbyterian Church in Villisca, which is where the service the Moore family had been attending shortly before they were killed, was held. Although he traveled around to different churches quite a bit, Kelly was at this time not really even an actual minister, though in his 40s, he was still attending a Nebraska seminary and making his rounds in the meantime. The night of the murders, in fact, he was staying at the home of Reverend Ewing, who was the actual minister of the Presbyterian Church, about a block away from the Moore house. By his own admission, he couldn't sleep that night, and he had gotten up to take a walk. He quickly gained a near-obsessive interest in these killings that took place so near to where he was staying. He pretended he was a detective and attempted to insert himself into the investigation from an early stage. The first Burns detective who was assigned the case, C.W. Toby, took a blunt approach and told Kelly in no uncertain terms to butt out. But the Kirk detective, Thomas O'Leary, indulged Kelly because he thought that he might be in, he might be involved with the crime and trying to gain some kind of advantage in the situation. But any real connection between him and the Velisca murders, and, in the minds of many, the entire string of Midwest Axe murders, didn't surface for a few years after they occurred. In the fall of 1913, Kelly was dismissed from the seminary and decided to try becoming a writer. I've heard no word on exactly what precipitated his removal from the seminary. He placed an ad in the Omaha World Herald stating that he was seeking, quote, 
a girl stenographer typewriter won it by gentlemen for literary and artistic work on problem novel, high class, for publication in East. Spare time work, some can be done at home, some at employers. Must be interested in literature and fine arts. Well educated. Confidential work. Must be willing to pose as model for book pictures as required by artists. Strictly honorable dealings. Liberal pay to right party. Reply confidentially to 0680 World Herald. What followed immediately afterwards is a matter described differently in different accounts. According to some, Kelly's ad was answered by Jessamine Hodgson, who was a woman in her 30s, while others still claim that his ad was answered by Jessamine Hodgson, but claim that she was only 16. Whatever the case, Kelly's letter in response began as follows. This is Friday morning, January 2nd. I received your letter this morning, and I am hurrying to reply at once. This letter is strictly and mutually secret and confidential. Kelly's letter has never actually been publicly released in its entirety, since, as the grand jury later ruled, quote, said letter was obscene, lewd, lascivious, and filthy, and was so obscene, lewd, lascivious, and filthy, as to be offensive to this honorable court and improper to be spread upon the record thereof. We also know the conclusion of the letter, however. I am a favorite with everyone, especially with the girls. They like me, they trust me, and I have never wronged one yet. Lynn George J. Kelly, reply quickly and freely. Replies treat it secret. That above sentence sounds like the exact type of thing someone who had wronged a female would say. But, in any case, whatever her age might have been, Miss Hodgson of Council Bluffs, Iowa, was apparently less than reassured by the four-page letter written back to her. She went to her minister with the letter, and the minister in turn contacted a deputy U.S. marshal named W.A. Gronaweg. The two worked out a, plane, a plan in which Jessamine would pen a reply to Kelly's letter, which Reverend Jones and Gronaweg would edit. This letter is also not in existence, or at least has not been released. A few weeks later, another response from Kelly was received. This letter, penned on January 23, 1914, began, Please, Jessamine, treat this and all our other communications as strictly secret. I faithfully promise you I shall never utter a word about your correspondence or your relations with me. Our relations together of work and pleasure shall be kept a secret with me forever. I want you to be faithful to me, Jessamine. Never breathe one word of what we do together alone. Like the previous letter, the grand jury, later investigating the letters, censored much of the content, only the opening and closing being released. It ended with, When you write, just tell me you will be willing to pose in the nude or perfectly bare. Then you can also address me as Dear Lynn, as we have begun to be friends, and sign Jessamine at the end. Nothing but the very best kindnesses await you. Not even waiting for a reply, Kelly also sent a second letter on January 25th. He pressed Jessamine for a photo and urged her to visit him, going on to presume that a relationship, presumably romantic, would develop between himself and his correspondent. But no reply or photograph was ever, was ever forthcoming. Five days later on January 30th, Kelly was arrested by another deputy U.S. Marshal, Walter McQueen. 
After he was convicted in the trial held shortly thereafter, Kelly was sent to St. Elizabeth's Mental Hospital in Washington, D.C., which, um, coincidentally, and to refer again to when I was on Project Archivist recently, um, we were discussing Jack the Slasher in Washington, D.C., and coincidentally, this is the same mental hospital that he was sent to when he was arrested. And he was actually would have been a patient at this hospital at the same time that Reverend Kelly was there. But anyway, while in St. Elizabeth's, Kelly proved to be quite a problematic prisoner, attempting suicide, babbling almost nonstop, asking other prisoners to murder him, even it said groping other prisoners. What exactly caused the Velisca authorities to begin investigating Kelly a second time is unknown. Some accounts state he confessed to the crimes while in the asylum, while it's equally likely, in my opinion, that in their hunt for another suspect after Frank Jones was exonerated shortly before, they might have simply caught wind of a former suspect being committed to a mental hospital. In any case, Kelly ended up being released from St. Elizabeth's. He was interviewed a short time later by Velisca investigators, and after they returned to Iowa, he began another bout of letter writing. This time, he claimed that his detective work had caused the true culprits to get nervous and make it appear that he committed the crimes. The investigators thought this was a pretty suspicious thing to just come out of nowhere and state, and soon after, he was picked up and charged formally with only one of the murders, that of Lena Stillinger. It was said that soon after that he confessed. By that time, James Wilkerson was the Burns detective on duty in Villisca, and as discussed in part two, he had his, um, basically, vendetta against Frank Jones. And his suspect had been formally exonerated, but he was unwilling to let it go and began actions to make it seem as though Kelly was only a fall guy being paid off by Frank Jones. The trial proceeded, and Wilkerson, who had transferred some of his ire to Attorney General Horace Havner as well, managed to manipulate events to get Havner arrested on the first day of Kelly's trial. Several of the lawyers that were involved with the case declared that his confession was likely worthless. In one instance, Kelly had also confessed to sinking the Lusitania, and attorney William Mitchell said it was apparent that he would confess to almost anything. Havner was soon released, and he pressed forward with the case. He claimed the confession was a valid one, despite the doubts of nearly every other attorney on the case. Several witnesses from the town Reverend Kelly lived in in, Sept in summer 1912, which was Macedonia, Iowa, recounted various statements made by him shortly after the Velisca murders. On June 12th, which is the same day that the murders were discovered, Kelly told Max Stemple of that town that he, that he had been nearby the night before, and that unable to sleep, he got up and took a walk. While near the Moore home, he said, he heard dull thumping sounds, similar to a hog being struck in the head with an axe. This, Havner maintained, was especially damning, suggesting that Kelly had knowledge of the murders almost before anyone else. A number of other witnesses testified to Kelly's obsession with the murders and his crimes to, his claims to be a detective. He was also apparently possessed of a 
rather paranoid nature and was constantly under was constantly fearing that detectives were on his trail. Witnesses also testified to seeing Kelly on a northbound train mumbling something about slay utterly. This phrase was to figure in his confession prominently. He claimed that while walking on the night of June 11th, he was attempting to formulate a sermon based on a text he called by this name. I would presume he's likely referring to Ezekiel 9.6, which in the King James translation of the Bible reads, Slay utterly old and young, both maids and little children and women, but come not near any man upon whom is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary. Then they began at the ancient men which were before the house. Here he began to claim that slay utterly was a order that God had given him, and that a shadowy form led him to the Moore house and told him to go in and sacrifice everyone in the house. Reverend Kelly claimed he went upstairs and killed the Moors, and then became tired. He went downstairs in search of somewhere to lay down. While there, he found the bed with the Stillinger girls and murdered both of them at the urging of God. Then, he said, he forgets exactly what happened. He thought he left the axe in the house. Then he left and went back to Reverend Ewing's house and went back to sleep. Psychologists at the trial, although differing in opinion about the likelihood of Kelly's turning violent, were in agreement on the fact that the man was clearly not well mentally. Another fact brought into the trial, whose exact relevance was a bit questionable, was a series of gouges in the settings and the ceiling. Presumably, these marks were gouged by the axe as it was being swung above the murderer's head. The, def the defense attempted to show that at only 5 foot 2 inches in height, an axe wielded by Kelly would not have cut these marks into the ceiling. The prosecution showed that it could indeed have done so. However, it later came out that to do so, the axe would have, would have needed to be gripped extremely near the bottom of the handle, something which would have rendered it not really as effective as a weapon. At the trial's conclusion, Kelly was acquitted. The man continued to move around, settling in Kansas City, Connecticut, New York City, and supposedly returning to England in the latter years of his life. Relatively little was known of him after the acquittal. So was Reverend Kelly guilty of the murders? I'm not really so sh certain of that. At first blush, he seems like an extremely good suspect, but when examined more closely, it seems unlikely he actually committed them. Some of his statements do imply to me that he very well may have had some knowledge of the crime that he didn't share with anybody. Because if Max Stemple's testimony is indeed valid, I mean, Kelly's mentioning of the murders on June 12th, before they would have really been known to much of anybody outside of Velisca itself, is a bit suggestive. Realistically, though, I think that his size and nature as a relatively frail man works against his guilt. Also, he, can't, he couldn't be reliably placed in any of the sites of the other murders. So, it's if you accept Reverend Kelly's guilt in the case of Velisca, then I think by kind of by default, you kind of have to also accept that this series is not a serial killer, which I think is blatantly not true.
Two letters were received by Mayor Maynard L. Meek and Town Marshal Morris Merritt, both of Ellsworth, Kansas, shortly after the murder of the Will Showman family there in October 1911. The two communications were largely identical in content. Both letters were postmarked Denver. Both were signed Masar Shalal Rosh Bas, a Hebrew phrase used in the Book of Isaiah, which meant quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil, and both were typewritten. The time of writing was dated at midnight, October 12th, but they were not mailed until the morning of October 16th, roughly four hours before the bodies of the showmans were discovered. The time of midnight and the date line was underlined in red ink. Denver, Colorado, October 17th, 1911, 12 a.m. Chief of Police, Ellsworth, Kansas. Sorry you students of crime are puzzled about the Axemen. According to Matthew 3rd chapter 10th verse and Joshua 9th chapter 24th verse, the Axe users, namely the Gideonites, are inhabitants of Lincoln, Nebraska and surroundings of the country and of the same city. If you will follow my advice, examine all Nebraskans living in your city, and if you fail to find the Axe Man, I may write you more. Be sure and do what I am telling you, and you will find your man. The above is a prophecy went into force since 1911, May 18th, and it will continue. Axe Man has job for four years and etc. After four years, then the criminals will use fire to destroy human life and etc. Yours for humanity and God, Masar Shalal Rashbas. The King James translation of Matthew 3.10 reads, And now the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth forth not good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. The same translation of Joshua 9.24 reads, And they answered Joshua and said, Because it was certainly told thy servants, how that the Lord thy God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land, and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Therefore we were sore afraid of our lives because of you, and have done this thing. The next year, after the murders at Villisca, several tantalizing clues were discovered by Kirk Agency Detective Thomas O'Leary, sifting through several bits of correspondence the police and others had received. The letter signed Masar Shalal Rashbas was relayed to him from Ellsworth at this time. In addition, a farmer named Harlan Burge of Gravity, Iowa, came forward with a sheaf of papers. These papers, it turned out, were a massive 40-page letter from a man named John Bolin. Bolin was, was formerly employed by Burge as a farmhand in 1908. In January 1912, Burge said, Bolin appeared at his home and accused him of hypnotizing him. After a few baffled moments, Bolin posed the question to Burge again, upon which Burge replied that he hadn't done anything of the sort. Bolin nodded and drove his wagon away. He had forgotten the incident until, in late June 1912, a few weeks after the murders at Villisca, he received the lengthy missive from, Vol from Bolin. This was followed in a few days by a second, both were written in a rambling, incoherent style, but all made mention of a garden of paradise, being cast out of the east door of the temple, and how a vision directed him to kill all who did not have a mark placed on their heads, which would mark their status as one of the righteous.
Bolin's letters were postmarked Nebraska City, Nebraska. Bolin was tracked down in St. Joseph, Iowa and arrested, though, when he, though he was released when he proved that he had been in the town of Hamburg the night of the murders. Another mysterious letter, postmarked Kansas, was received in the days following the Velisca slaughter. It is usually referred to as the Whirlwinds of Ezekiel letter. Similarly to the one received in Ellsworth a few months before, it was typewritten and certain words were underlined in red ink. These words were show man, to believe to refer to the surname of the Ellsworth victims, and the word more toward the letter's end. And given the apparent meaning of the first underlined phrase, it was theorized that this was the reference to the name of the family in Velisca. The letter read, Will you people of Velisca hear me? A man by wrong may be real, may be imaginary. In either case, poverty does deny him the law. May he avenge himself in this upon a society. I am the mystery of life. Death is upon earth, Eretta. If you will listen to the voice in my words, you will find me. Is there evil in a city, and God hath not, hath not done it? Thou art my battle-axe, weapon of war, for with thee will I break in pieces a nation. Nay, shun, as if the axe should shake against them that lift it up. A postal mailed in Denver, the hour of sacrifice, miles away. We, the people of America, sacrifice thousands for money every year. Our victims for the root of evil begin in the mother's womb and end in helpless old age. The neighborhood, the press where these killings take place, seldom record or even take note of the root. God will find the root, for God will show man. Also now, therefore, the axe is laid unto the root of the tree of murder. It is murder without money incentive that excites us. Are those in murder without money behind it necessarily insane? Does not God understand truth? Is God an intelligent being, or less intelligent, O man, than you? The whirlwinds of Ezekiel, Babylon, blessed art thou, Velisca. God's hand hath touched thee, as Christ murdered upon the cross of the world, head down, then on the cross of nation. Blessed art thou, for God hath chosen thee from the midst of thy sisters. It is only more, for the Eretta is still in you. Sweet babes bear the shakings of a nation's sacrifice of heaven. Several things are apparent from this letter, in my view. First, that this and the Ellsworth letter are written by the same hand. I think the similarity in the way they're written, typewritten with red ink annotations, as well as the reference to the root of the tree, which seems to be alluding to the same biblical verse, Matthew 3.10, as the previous one, suggests this strongly. Of course, the direct references to the previous letter, a postal mailed in Denver the hour of sacrifice miles away, suggests this as well. Second, it suggests that, at the very least, the Ellsworth and Velisca crimes were committed by the same hand. Some of the misspellings are interesting. Both mystery of life and nation are spelled in a bizarre way. I'll probably write these out in the show notes as they, as they appear in this, because as I'm reading it, it's hard to get handle on what exactly, how exactly they were written. Another bizarre feature is the word Eretta, inserted in the text almost randomly. Eret is a surname, 
and it's also occasionally used as a first name as well. But given the letter's overall religious tone, it's likely a, it's likely a reference to the German word erretten, which appears quite commonly in German editions of the Bible. It means to deliver, rescue, or save. I wonder how certain it was that John Bowen had written those letters for which he was arrested. The killing of people who did not bear a certain mark in those, as well as the whirlwind's letters references to Ezekiel, conjure up parallels to the alleged confession of Reverend Kelly. Part of me almost wonders whether Kelly could be the author of these letters. The Mahar Shalal Rosh Bas letter seems to imply strongly that the author of the letter is not the one who actually committed the murder. Finally, we come to the final thing I wanted to bring up, to which I alluded in the introduction. The matter of the second serial killer. From November 12, 1909 until about three years later in November 1912, a very similar series of murders were taking place in Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi. These two were axe murders and usually family annihilations similar to the Midwest slangs. Unlike those, the southern murders were exclusively of blacks and or mixed race individuals. Because of their race and location, the murder of the Cassaways in San Antonio is often ascribed to this southern killer. Although, as I said, the circumstances and the exact details of the murder make it far more likely that it was actually the work of the Midwest killer. The southern killings, aside from the Cassaway murder, were definitively not the work of the same, same person. Victims were attacked while awake, the bodies were not covered, usually, nor were the blinds drawn or otherwise darkened. The bodies were sometimes posed as if they were in prayer. They were sometimes stabbed or shot in addition to their axe wounds. Initially, a man named Raymond Barnabay was picked up for the murders of Alexander and Mimi Andrus, as well as their children, Joaquin and Agnes, in Lafayette, Louisiana. Raymond's girlfriend, Dina Porter, as well as his children, Clementine and Zephyrin, all testified to his violent nature. Raymond ended up being convicted in October 1911. But though the killer was, presumably, in jail, the murders continued. On November 26, 1911, the family of Norbert and Azima Randall were killed, again in Lafayette. Another daughter who had survived came home at about 7 in the morning to find the rest of her family dead. Standing on the porch of a neighboring home stood a woman watching the fleeing girl. Within hours, the police would investigate this watcher and make an arrest after clothes drenched in blood were found inside a room of her in, in a room in the house, whose knob was also stained with blood. The watcher was Clementine Barnabay, the girl whose testimony had helped convict her father a month before. So she was jailed too, and predictably, there was another murder this one in Crowley, Louisiana. So Zephyrin Barnabay was picked up on no real evidence. I'd actually argue that Raymond was also being held on no real evidence. And again, there was another murder. Now in Lake Charles, Louisiana. Felix Broussard and his wife, as well as their three children, were killed. Messages were scrawled in pencil on the inside of a kitchen door in the house. They read, Human 5... 
and what is usually described as a Bible verse, when he maketh inquisition for blood, he forgetteth not the humble. This was actually not a Bible verse, but a quotation from Uncle Tom's Cabin, which was misquoting from Psalms 9.12. The murders continued. Clementine began to talk of something called the Church of Sacrifice, a group of parishioners of the Christ-sanctified Holy Church, a church which had branches in many of the towns in which the murders took place, and in which it was known she and Azima Randall, at least, attended. Zephyrin was released after there was yet another killing, and several other parishioners were brought in, questioned, and released. Eventually, the murders ground to a halt, and Raymond also was released. Clementine remained in prison, and was finally released in the 1920s. It was never actually proven that the murders were related to a cult, as Clementine claimed. So what was the relationship between the Midwest and Southern crimes? The timing of them seems rather suspicious to me. Two serial killers, both of whom used axes to slaughter entire families at literally the exact same time, to my mind, that, that almost has to be something more, more than a coincidence. And what of the Cassaway murder? To which killer does that really belong? The victimology seems to fit the Southern crimes better. While the way in which the crime was actually committed tallies more with the other Midwest crimes. Listeners, email me and let me know what you think about this relationship. Because, to be, to be honest, I'm not sure what I think. And that's the end of this episode. A list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description. If you have a question, a comment, or know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to our Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarkness77 at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast. And so until next time, this is Andrew, signing off.